Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Revelation study, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as we work our way through the entire book of Revelation. And we are on chapter seven uh, this week. And we're in the midst of the opening of the seven seals. And we know that that scroll was found in the right hand of God and nobody in heaven or earth was found worthy to open that scroll or even to look at it. Can you imagine that statement? Not even worthy to look at it. And yet uh, John weeps and he's told to stop weeping because one was found worthy and it was uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah and this, he turns to see this lion, he ends up seeing a lamb standing as if slain. So we get our paradoxes of, of uh, someone described as a lion appearing as a lamb, appearing as slain and yet still standing. So it's all these wonderful paradoxes that Jesus kind of encapsulates. Uh, if you remember from chapter one and that wonderful blazon of Jesus, that wonderful picture of him from head to toe, he talked about his hair being like snow and his eyes like fire. And we saw him encapsulating heat and cold and, and, and we saw you know all these alpha and omega pictures that he's the beginning and the end and that he, he comprehends all things in creation. Um, so that kind of picture continues with the lion and the lamb and he's slain yet he's standing and just all these great uh, beautiful pictures of our savior this way. So Jesus started opening these seals last week. And one day that'll be literally true, people will say that. But now it's just in the, in the book of Revelation, he starts opening these seals. We've gotten through six of those seals and we're in between the sixth and seventh seal. And there's gonna be this brief pause that happens to introduce us to two groups. So let's open in a word of prayer and we'll see what we have uh, tonight. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So Lord, uh, we humbly open your book today, and we do our very best, Lord, to seek you out and to understand you through this word. So we pray that you would bless this effort, Lord, Bless the efforts that we may know you, our God, better and better. And by knowing you better, Lord, we would very naturally love you better. So we pray for these things to happen in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, here we have in between the sixth and seventh seal a pause. This pause is to identify two groups of people to us before we get to the seventh seal. Now, these people are identified uh, as being saved after the rapture. The rapture happened at the beginning of chapter four, and now we have this picture that we're gonna see of two groups of people. Now, so this raises the question, how can, be pe how can people be saved after the rapture if the Holy Spirit is in the believer and the believer's raptured and the Holy Spirit departs the earth we naturally see the evil that comes from that, but where would the Holy Spirit's work be in salvation of people that are left behind if the Holy Spirit's not here? Well, that answer may be because people, people were saved before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that happened at Pentecost. There are certainly people saved throughout the Old 
Testament covenant. So they may very well be sealed after the Holy Spirit leaves as well. For example, we see Jesus working at times through the Old Testament, but not in his office as Savior or as the Messiah. We don't see that until he gets baptized by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Now, <laughs> an example I want to show you to start of this is this. So we, so, so we have Jesus, although he's not incarnate in the world until his birth, and he's not uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit until his baptism, yet we see the saving work of Jesus applied to Old Testament folks. And Paul discusses that in Romans chapter 4, if you want to get more detailed about that. But we do have appearances of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. I mentioned Melchizedek, I believe, last week, which is a wonderful picture of that. But I want to show you something that I think is pretty explicit of the, of the work of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So I would turn your attention to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. Before we get into uh, these groups of people that we're going to meet, what I want to discuss is if we believe the rapture of the church raptures all believers who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in them and the awfulness of the tribulation is largely because there is no one with the Holy Spirit left behind. Uh, as I said earlier, there's no Red Cross, there's no Salvation Army, all these great Christian organizations that help out during world wars and things like that. There's none, none of that going to be left behind. Yet we do see the work of the Holy Spirit after the rapture and what I want to show you is uh, first of all, through through uh, Samson in the book of Judges, um, when does Samson accomplish all of his supernatural deeds? There's this fascinating phrase that happens every time right before Samson does something supernatural. It'll say, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. So we see the work of the Holy Spirit there before Pentecost in the life of Samson. And now I want to I look at the birth narrative of Samson to say not only did we see the Holy Spirit in Samson's life, but we also see the work of Jesus Christ in Samson's life. So let's pick it up in verse 15. This is the birth announcement from an angel of the Lord to Samson's parents. Picking up verse 15, we start with Manoah. Manoah is Samson's father. Of course, Samson's not born yet. This is his birth announcement. It says, that Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when, you, when your words come to pass, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now, some of your Bibles might capitalize the word wonderful there. And if they do, it's because they are attaching the reference to Isaiah um, chapter 9. That's a prophecy of the birth of Christ that says he shall be called wonderful. And they're seeing that prefigured here in this angel of the Lord saying, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. 
When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die because we have seen God. Now, what just happened? Manoah wants to honor this angel of the Lord. So he says, I want to prepare a young goat for you. Angel Lord says, if you prepare it, prepare it as a burnt offering. Now, as soon as he goes to put the goat on the altar of burnt offering, instead of the goat, the angel Lord jumps on the flame of the fire and ascends to heaven in the flame. So what statement is the angel of the Lord making? Saying that goat's not your sacrifice. I'm your sacrifice. Now, who's the only one in the universe that can say he's our sacrifice? It's Jesus, okay? And what do Manoah and his wife say about it? They say, we have seen God. They knew this angel of the Lord was no ordinary angel. This angel is God, yet nobody can see God and live. So that's why they're afraid they're going to die at the end here. Yet they don't die because God will manifest himself as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And we see that there's evidence that those occurrences of the, the angel of the Lord is actually Jesus Christ there. And then we see that here as he becomes the sacrifice. And he also said his name was wonderful, which points to Isaiah 9. So, so when Isaiah announces that this one that will be born of a virgin shall be called wonderful, Isaiah's immediate audience would able, be able to say this, and it's a really beautiful picture. The one that's promised that will be born in the future of a virgin is going to be the same one that appeared to Manoah in the past. Isn't that a cool thought? They can look at the angel Lord of the past and go, that's the one that will be born to us in the future if they connect the dots. Okay, so it's a really beautiful picture there. So we see the ministry of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament there, announcing the birth of Samson. And, we, and then we see Samson's power comes in when the Holy Spirit comes upon him. So Samson's a great picture of the Trinity. He's, he's got Father, Son, Holy Spirit working through his story there throughout. So we see the Holy Spirit present in Samson's life. We see, see the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, present in the Old Testament as well. So how can people be saved after the rapture? Well, just like before Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down to indwell people, people were saved through the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit goes through uh, the believers and leave the earth, he can still have that same ministry of salvation towards people. All right. So let's get into uh, the text. Verse 1, chapter 7. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. So the first thing we see here is the number four coming up several times. Now, as you know, Bible numbers have significance. The number four is the number for the world. Um, now, <clears throat> some people will say, you know, the Bible cannot be taken literally or the Bible is not inspired because this says the four corners of the earth and the earth we know to be round. How could it have corners? I just want to say that's a silly argument. Okay, certainly the Bible can be literal and figurative at the same time. You can literally, you take the figurative language literally. So in other words, I think I said this earlier, we are to understand some of these texts literarily. We need to see the genre of literature that it's written in. So we have the four corners of the 
earth having four winds being held back by four angels and the purpose of the wind is going to be to blow on the earth to see and on all the trees but it's being held back here at the per, uh, at the uh, at, at the present time they're being held back now this we believe to be the winds of Daniel chapter 7 so if we go to with me to Daniel chapter 7 Daniel chapter 7, I'm, it's starting in verse 2. It says, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom the three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, all of that's very self-explanatory. Everybody knows exactly what all that means, correct? All right. Now, um, these are predictions of the four world kingdoms that Daniel saw earlier in a dream of the statue that the golden head was Babylon, the silver arms and chest was the Medo-Persian Empire, the belly was the Grecian Empire, and the, and the feet and the toes were the Roman Empire. And the ten toes here represent the ten horns of this beast. So it's similar in meaning. And, and so um, here these winds in Daniel are going to bring forth these rulers. So these winds are what are provoking the, this movement of these kingdoms and these rulers. But right now in Revelation, those winds are being held back for a moment um, to introduce these two groups to us. First of all, now, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 2 says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. All right, so the winds are being held back before provoking, before harming the, the sea and the trees and the earth. They're being held back until God protects a group of people on the earth from these winds and from the tribulation that's coming. So he's going to protect some people from this. Now, 
God has set forth a precedent. There's a precedent established throughout the scripture of protecting a remnant from judgment. When he's going to judge the world, he will select a remnant out of the judgment based on his mercy, to display his mercy. Though the wages of sin is death, there's a gift of God of eternal life through Christ Jesus. Now, he will choose a remnant, not necessarily because they've earned or deserved anything. It's because of the mercy of God, he doesn't just completely wipe out the whole population. So you should be immediately thinking of Noah. Noah and his family were saved from the global catastrophe of the flood. You can remember Lot and his family that God agreed for their sake, he was willing to not even destroy Sodom and Gomorrah at all for their sake. And then the angels, of course, were trying to um, have sex with, uh, I'm sorry, the, the townspeople were trying to have sex with the angels. And that's when the angels decided to put the wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. But faithful to his word, God spared the 10 that Abraham interceded for, Lot and his family. And so they were able to escape. You can think also of Rahab and her whole family was able to um, escape the destruction of Jericho. Now, there's one thing those three stories have in common that I want to mention really quick to honor our Lord and Savior and just bring him glory through these stories. And that is what these three stories have in common is a door. Noah's door, uh, when God gave him all these details of building the ark, that one of those great details was this, there's one door. You want to be saved? There's not a lot of choices here. You got the one door to go through. If you're inside that door, you will live. Everybody outside that door will die. Lot and his family, when the, when the townspeople are trying to uh, gang rape um, the angels, uh, they were, the angels brought Lot inside the door and they're told, get everybody in your family inside this door. Whoever's in this side, this door will be safe. Whoever's outside the door, will not. Same is true of the Passover. Passover's door was marked off by the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And whoever's inside those doors will survive the angel of death. They'll live. Whoever's outside those doors, the firstborns will die. And of course, there's Rahab, her door marked with the scarlet cord. And the deal with her is whoever's you and your family, whoever's inside the door will live. Whoever's outside the door will die. Now do you see how wonderful it is that in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. Whoever's in me will live. Whoever's outside of me will die. God is willing to save a remnant, not based on the worthiness of any one of us, but based on his mercy. And now his mercy extends to all who will simply believe in the plan of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, but who are these divinely protected people? So verse four says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. 
of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So there's 12,000 sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Therefore, the 144,000 are Jewish. Now, there's been many, many, many occult to rise up, and there's cults that exist in our nation today that claim to be the 144,000, that they are the 144,000. Your quick question to them should simply be this, are, what tribe are you from? If you are part of the 144,000, what tribe exactly are you from? Because these folks are Jewish. Okay, they are not Gentiles. Now, some have suggested they could be Gentiles based on Romans chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul says, not all who are Israel are Israel. And he goes into talking. In fact, let's go to Romans chapter 9. So the people that claim as Gentiles that they're a part of 144,000, this is the verse they're going to bring you to to try to get you into their cult. Okay? They're going to say, Romans 9, 6 says, but it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But, quote, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So now, what's going on here? Well, Paul's saying it is not the physical descendants of Abraham that make up Israel now. It's all who have the same faith as Abraham. And he says the proof is this. The promise to Abraham was that Sarah will have a son. And that son that was promised to her is Isaac. Ishmael came not as, not as a fulfillment of a promise, but as a fleshly decision. Ishmael was not the fulfillment of the promise. Isaac was. So now, Paul is saying God demonstrates that it's based on a promise, not on a fleshly relationship. So if you believe the promises, you become a descendant of Abraham because Isaac is the promised child and we become his descendants if we believe in the promise. So God made it spiritual descendants more than physical descendants uh, based on the promise. Now, there could be more than 144,000 that get saved in the, in the tribulation time. These just so happen to be the ones that are sealed for service to God. They're gonna be divinely protected for service to God and we, we're gonna see the fruit of their service, or at least the likely fruit of their service, very, very shortly. So, these 144,000, those that claim they could be Gentiles based on Romans 9, 6, what I would suggest to them is this. Although Paul makes a solid argument that yes, Gentiles will be considered the children of Abraham, like I am, and probably most of you are, a Gentile that's considered the child of Abraham now, that can't be applied to this passage, why? because this is literally listing the 12 tribes of Israel and saying 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, that limits this possibility to Jewish people. So they would become the 144,000. Now, 
couple points of curiosity arise from this list of the 12 tribes of Israel. First point of curiosity is this. Most of the times when we see this list of the 12 tribes, it's usually to distribute land to these 12 tribes. Now, what tribe was told you're not going to receive any land? It's the tribe of Levi. So usually Levi is excluded from this group. Now, why were they excluded from land inheritance? Because they were assigned the priestly role. And so therefore, God is their inheritance. They're not to take land as an inheritance. And therefore, you would think, okay, now there's only going to be 11 tribes that get the land. But there's still 12. Why? Because Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are counted for Joseph. So that gives us 12 tribes again. So, that being true, we still see this. We see the Levites mentioned in Revelation. The Levi was in part of the 144,000. So now we're again going, okay, so that should give us a full 12 tribes. If you count Joseph for Ephraim and Manasseh and you count Levi, that's just 12 now. But we see Manasseh listed here and Joseph, but there's no Ephraim. So what is going on there? Well, quite frankly, it's, it's pretty mysterious. But one suggestion is this. It's not that Ephraim has done anything wrong because Ephraim is held in very high esteem as one of the 12 tribes. In fact, Ephraim is considered like the main tribe of the 10 northern tribes that make up the northern kingdom of Israel. They're considered the key, the key tribe. In fact, I love this verse. I know I wrote it down. Let me see where I wrote it down. Um, Deuteronomy 33.12 Deuteronomy 33.12 I love this picture that Moses writes here and this has to do with the pre preeminence of Ephraim as one of the ten uh, pre uh, as a premium tribe of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom 33.12 of Deuteronomy says of Benjamin he said the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all the day long and he shall dwell between his shoulders. Now you're saying, how in the world is that praising Ephraim when it only mentions Benjamin? Because what they considered to be the shoulders of God was the southern tribe of Judah and the northern tribe of um, Ephraim and the fact that Benjamin rests in between those, it's saying he's in between God's shoulders there. So it took Judah and Ephraim as the shoulders, and Benjamin has that privileged place of dwelling between his shoulders, and they considered his shoulders, therefore, to be Judah and Ephraim. So Ephraim's considered one of the shoulders of God. That's a very high privileged uh, compliment to be given. So we don't believe that there's anything wrong with Ephraim that he's not included here. In fact, he might have the privilege of even being called by his dad's name here, Joseph. So we have Joseph and Manasseh in here with the 12 tribes. But there's something still even more mysterious going on with these 12, and I'm sure many of you are very, very aware of the next issue with these 12 tribes, is we have Ephraim, we have Joseph, we have Levi. So if we have the original 12 plus Ephraim, that gives us 13, yet there's only 12 here. So who's missing? Dan. The tribe of Dan is not found in this list at all. Why do we think Dan is missing? Two 
very popular explanations of why Dan is not included in the 144,000. Reason number one, when you study the book of Judges, you'll see the tribe of Dan is the first one to go into idolatry. So with that idolatry, um, it very well could be that that tribe uh, is the first to depart from the grace of God and therefore excluded from the 144,000 in Revelation. A second thought on that has to be with, it's predicted that the Antichrist will indeed come from the tribe of Dan. Why do they believe that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan? Because of Genesis um, chapter, uh, I think it's 49, yeah, chapter 49, verse 17, says this, this is in the blessings that uh, Jacob's giving to his 12 sons before he dies. And of Dan, he said this, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Not the kind of thing you want to tell your son to encourage him, okay? So we believe that this is an anticipation that the Antichrist is gonna come out of the tribe of Dan and it also led Israel into idolatry in the book of Judges. And therefore, it's probably, those are the two crimes of the tribe of Dan that we see um, and why they're probably excluded from the 144,000. Now, this idea of striking the horse's heels. So the striking of the heel was always what the weaker enemy would do to the victorious enemy. It was always pictured as striking his heel, where the victor would be described as crushing the head. Now, where does that sound familiar to you from? It sounds familiar to you from Genesis 3.15, which is affectionately known in theological circles as the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first, evangelion, coming from the Greek euangelion, which is the gospel. So the first mention of the gospel in the Bible it's Genesis 3.15. Just a quick side note that you can fill the inbox with questions on for next week is this. I don't think Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of the gospel. I think Genesis 1, 1 through 3 is the first mention of the gospel. But tune in for future Genesis classes for more details on that. Now, Genesis 3.15, in the curse on the woman, I'm sorry, the curse on the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will strike him in the heel and he will crush your head. So there we see the, the striking of the heel of the seed of the serpent towards the seed of the woman. Now, it's the first mention of the gospel. Now, what's the fulfillment of that? Well, I think it's wonderful what Paul says in Galatians 3.16, if you want to join me there. Galatians 3.16, Paul says this, and it's just, it's one of the big pieces of the puzzle that helped form the New Testament picture. Galatians 3.16 is a larger than most pieces of the New Testament puzzle. It's a very important uh, section here. Galatians 3.16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He did not say, and to seeds, plural as of many, but as of one, and to your seed. So what Paul wants to point out is he said, read Genesis 3.15 again, or I'm sorry, read the promises to Abraham. The promises were to Abraham and his seed, his singular seed, 
not his plural seeds. The promise is to one, Paul is saying, with a capital S for seed. So who is this one seed who is the promise? Well, he finishes verse 16 by saying, who is Christ? So the promises of the Old Testament, Paul says, are to Christ. So why do we always say these are our promises? Because if you're in Christ, then the promises are to you. The promises are to Jesus Christ and to all who are in him. So if you're in Christ, then you're a recipient of the promises. But the promises are to Christ. They're to his seed. Now, Paul goes on to say, and I say that the law, which was 430 years after Abraham, because the law was through Moses, 430 years after Abraham, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. That's why Gentiles can be saved, because we're children of promise. We're not the fleshly descendants of Abraham. We're, we're the recipients of the promise that was given to Abraham and to his singular seed, capital S, seed Jesus Christ. The other thing I wanted to say about that, if I can get it back in my mind right now, is this. Well, I can't get it back in my mind. So the promises to Abraham and to his seed, capital S, that's Jesus Christ, the promises are to him. Now, verse, what am I on, nine. So the 144,000 are Jewish, and Dan is absent due to most likely the idolatry that he started and possibly that the Antichrist is from his, his uh, tribe. And the prophecy from Genesis 49 seems to anticipate Antichrist. And then we just went through the striking of the heel and that's relationship to the Proto-Evangelium and the beautiful picture that uh, the enmity that's between the woman and her seed um, is singular seed, it's Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I wanted to say. I knew I'd get it back if I rambled a little bit. All right. The seed, I want you to think about this. That if you know anything about biology, the proto-evangelium should be a bit upsetting to you. Because it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Do women have seed? They have eggs, right? Men have seed, and it's always the seed of the man that the Bible talks about, except here it says her seed. Now, that's biologically incorrect. So how do we save the Bible from being wrong and therefore untrustworthy? If it's wrong in one area, it can't be trusted in any area. So if, it, if God made us and then says her seed when she doesn't have any seed, the man does, how does that get resolved? The only way Genesis 3.15 can be resolved is if somehow, some way, sometime in the future after Genesis 3, there's a birth that had nothing to do with a man. There has to be a virgin birth or Genesis 3.15 doesn't make sense. There has to be a virgin birth. There has to be a birth where there was no seed of the man involved whatsoever. So the Bible kind of throws a lot of weight into the third chapter of the entire scriptures 
and says people, when they figure out biology in the future, they're going to realize that this is totally wrong. And the only thing that'll save it is a virgin birth. And there we have our virgin birth, who's the recipient of this prophecy that will crush the head of the serpent and that serpent will strike his heel. And the striking of the heel, of course, is the cross. All right. Back to Revelation 7. Now that we've identified the 144,000 as a Jewish remnant with the seal of God on their forehead to protect them from the Antichrist and the tribulation and all of that, we see now in verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What do we have here? First it says there's an innumerable multitude from all parts of the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Isn't that glorious? Okay, it's glorious. Every, every nation's going to have representatives of heaven. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, all are going to have representatives of heaven. There's so many people we've never met from so many places in the world. That fact will end at your death where you'll be introduced to peoples from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Isn't that glorious? Now, this heeds back to Jesus' command after he received all authority. He says, all authority has been given to me. And what's the first thing out of his mouth once he announces that he has all authority, where it's been said that every molecule in the universe, Jesus stands upon and says, mine. So with all authority over the entire universe, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1.8, he adds this. He says, you're to do this in Jerusalem, where they immediately are, then move it outward to Judea, from there, move it outward to Samaria, and from there, move it outward to the ends of the earth. So Jesus talks about the movement of the gospel beginning in Jerusalem and then working its way out to the ends of the earth. And what a beautiful picture we have of this in three consecutive chapters of the book of Acts, Acts 8, 9, and 10. Now I want to point out Acts 8, 9, and 10 because what do we just read? John looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes of palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Now, where did these people come from? Where did they start from? Well, let's go back to the flood for just a minute. The survivors of the flood have to repopulate the earth. The three men and their wives that repopulate the earth are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives are going to repopulate the earth. Now, all of you in front of me tonight are a descendant of either Ham or Shem or Japheth. And in Acts chapter 8, we meet an Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is a Hamite. He's from Ethiopia. He's from Africa, descendants of Ham. He's a Hamite. And God sends one evangelist who looks like the most effective evangelist of the 12 apostles, Philip, to that one singular Ethiopian eunuch who traveled 
from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. And now he's on his way back. And on his way back, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. God sees him. God sends Philip to him. Philip teaches him what Isaiah is saying. And it's one of the most beautiful pictures you'll ever see in the Bible because he, he baptizes this eunuch and then Philip is snatched away. It's almost like the, um, the rapture uh, word. He's snatched away from the eunuch and the eunuch goes on rejoicing. And you say, how do we know he's rejoicing? Well, the Bible tells you where in Isaiah he was reading. And if you go to that section of Isaiah where he was reading, it immediately starts promises to a eunuch. It says, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath and does what pleases me, to him I'll, I'll give a name that'll never be cut off. So it's, there's this promise, of, and you'll have more children than the married woman, and a eunuch is castrated. So that's quite a trick to have more kids than a married woman when you're castrated. So all these promises the eunuch received, church history tells us that this eunuch went back to Ethiopia and he started a church. And that church you've heard of in the news over the last several years a lot, it's called the Coptic Church in North um, Eastern Africa and Southwestern Egypt, the Coptic Church. You've seen pictures of the Coptic Church um, four or five years ago quite often on TV because you would see their church members all wearing orange jumpsuits on their knees on the shore of the beach with ISIS behind them with machetes publicly and on video beheading them all. Those are the Coptic Christians. Now, if you visit a Coptic church, not that I just made that attractive for you, but if you ever visit a Coptic church and you look at their ancestry and you see who their founders are, the very top of that list is the Ethiopian eunuch. And guess what they call him? They call him their father. And what was the promise to the eunuch? You'll have more children than the married woman. And millions throughout the centuries have called him father. It's literally, all that's literally fulfilled in the Ethiopian eunuch. So this Ethiopian eunuch who's a Hamite gets saved and in the text where he's being saved, it says that he's on a road that's leaving Jerusalem to go westward back to Ethiopia, okay? So it's on a road leaving Jerusalem. What did Jesus say? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So on a road leaving Jerusalem, we see a Hamite saved in Acts chapter 8. You turn to Acts chapter 9, and we see a Shemite named Saul. He's on a road leaving Jerusalem, going to Damascus in Syria. And Saul gets saved on that road leaving Jerusalem, going to Damascus in Syria, and he becomes the apostle Paul. He's a Shemite. So in Acts 8, a Hamite, a descendant of Ham is saved. Acts chapter 9, a descendant of Shem is saved. Then we, on a road leaving Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 10, we meet a Roman centurion who lives on a street called Straight, which goes from Jerusalem eastward. And he gets saved by the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10. So what happens in 8, 9, and 10? Three men on three roads, all leaving Jerusalem, get saved. One's a Hamite, one's a Shemite, one's a Japhethite. And what's the result of these three men from these three ancestors of Noah being saved? It ends up sounding like this, guys. It ends up sounding like, I, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can number from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Jesus said it starts like a mustard seed and it just grows. And you see it starting with those three men, a Hamite, a Shemite, a Japhethite, and then you see, and the, and the Bible's good at counting people, right? We just heard there's 144,000. Earlier we heard of 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands. When we get to this, it says I'm not even counting anymore. It's too many. So imagine how many that is. It's just too many to count. Okay, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Listen, I'm giving myself goosebumps. I hope this is getting through to you guys. This is amazing stuff. Now, moving on. Back to Revelation 7. So what's with the white robes? Well, these white robes um, are indicative. I think I mentioned this before with white. Um, well, it has to do with their newly acquired purity and their imputed righteousness. Newly acquired purity and their imputed righteousness. Now, what is imputed righteousness? Imputed righteousness is what Martin Luther liked to call an alien righteousness. Now, I know when I say that to 17-year-olds, they're like, cool, it's from outer space. That's not what alien means, okay? Alien means foreign to me. It's not my righteousness. It's some righteousness that came from somewhere outside of me. And the idea is this. We were called to be perfect as God is perfect, to be holy as he is holy. And none of us have done that. Nobody can do that. So our own righteousness is not going to cut it to be when we're judged. So we need a righteousness imputed to us. And the only righteousness that qualifies for heaven is the righteousness that Jesus Christ earned and deserved by the perfection of his life for the 33 years that he walked this world. Jesus was saved by works. He performed the law. Remember his baptism. I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm fulfilling the law. Jesus lived a life worthy of heaven. So now that he has that righteousness, he dies on the cross. And I know you've always heard that he died for your sins, and that's absolutely true. But what needs to be said right alongside that every time is, he not only died for you, but he also lived for you. He had to live the righteous life that you and I cannot live. And when he lives that righteous life, he imputes that earned and deserved righteousness to the believer through their faith. So now on your judgment day, you'll be judged based on the righteousness of Christ, not on your own righteousness. And Jesus teaches this very clearly in a parable in Matthew chapter 22. In that parable in Matthew 22, the idea of these white robes here is seen because it's the idea of a king throwing a wedding feast for his son. So he invites all the people of the kingdom to the wedding feast, but they all make excuses of why they can't make it. So those would be the Jews. They're the people of the kingdom. So then, God, so then the king gets mad and says, go to the alleyways where the tax collectors and sinners are. And then after you invite all of them, go outside of the kingdom onto the roads and highways. Get out of the kingdom and invite them. Those are the Gentiles. And it says they all come to the wedding feast and everything's wonderful and great except for one guy. He doesn't have on a wedding garment. He has on his own garment. So it sounds like no big deal until the king confronts him and he, because he doesn't have a wedding garment, he says, throw him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell. Why? Because what is the garment that he wore? It's the garment of self-righteousness. 
I don't ha he didn't have it imputed to him. He didn't get a wedding garment. He wore his own clothes. If you try to get to heaven on your own righteousness, you're going to be kicked out. You have to receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ as he receives your sin. Your sin's imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to you. That's the great exchange, and that's why he's so worthy, because he was slain that we saw last week or the week before. All right. So, the white robes is the newly acquired purity and the imputed righteousness. The palm branches in their hand indicate they're triumphant. When, when their victorious armies would come back, they would wave palm branches towards them. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, it's palm branches. They, they see him as a victorious king. In heaven, that's what the ones dressed in white that are too many to count um, are doing. And what are they singing? What are they crying out? They're giving credit where credit is due. How did they get to heaven? How are they dressed in white? It's because salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb who was slain. So they're singing this, this wonderful song and identifying where their purity and their righteousness comes from. All right. Verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Two observations about these two verses that I want to share with you. Observation one. This song begins and ends with the word amen, correct? And we're very used to seeing the word amen at the end of prayers and doxologies and things like that. Amen means let it be so or verily or truly it means. So when we pray, we're saying let this be so by saying amen. Yet when Jesus teaches, he often begins his teaching by saying amen. He'll say, verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you. That's the Greek word, amen. He's saying, amen, amen, I say to you. Now, why is he doing that? Because the crowds would marvel and say, he does not teach like the others. He teaches as one who has authority. So where are they hearing the authority in Christ? Well, part of the reason that they hear authority is because he begins his teachings with the word amen. We have to finish by saying, let it be so. But when Jesus starts with an amen, he's saying, this is so. What I'm about to say is so. And he can say that because in John 14, 6, he says, I am the truth. So everything that he says is true, and that gives him the right and the authority to begin his teachings with amen. This is indeed so. It's the Old Testament equivalent in the Hebrew of the prophet's declaration, thus saith the Lord. When he says, thus saith the Lord, then they'll tell you what the Lord said. So Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to you, and the Old Testament prophets, thus saith the Lord, it's kind of like saying this. What I'm about to tell you, don't argue with it. This is done deal. This is as authoritative as it gets. This is from the mouth of God. Jesus claims that authority, and they recognize that when they listen to him. All right, so... The second thing I want to point out about this is there are seven ascriptions of praise here. Seven ascriptions of praise. 
its blessing and its glory and its wisdom and its thanksgiving and its honor and its power and its might. Now, if you've ever taken any of my Old Testament classes, I've taught you something called chiastic patterns. And for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, it's simply this. It's simply saying the Bible emphasizes things that are in the middle. We talked about uh, the throne of God is in the midst of heaven. It's in the middle. Everything's in the middle. Jesus hangs in the middle of two other thieves. The, the main most important thing in a story is in the middle. A lot of times English readers miss what the Bible's trying to teach because we read right past the middle, which was the main part of the lesson, and we look for the main part in the end, and then we go, that wasn't very instructive. Well, it's because you missed it. It was in the middle, okay? Now, listen to these words, blessing, glory, wisdom, and then it has honor, power, might. And what's in the middle of these seven descriptions of praise? It's the one that we probably don't find as powerful as the other six. It's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. Now, I would say, when people say, hey, what's the Lord been showing you lately? I would say this. Through the last year, and I don't even want to say the word that describes the last year. I'm so sick of that word. But through the last year, the thing, the word that God has given me, as far as underestimating its importance, that we've got to raise up this word more, is thankfulness, is being thankful. There is an enormous amount of emotional and spiritual health in just being thankful. We are by nature complainers, and that makes us sick, quite frankly. And the people that you're talking to, you make them sick too, probably. There's so much health in thanksgiving, counting your blessings, thankful for the meal in front of you, uh, you know why I like wearing a mask, believe it or not? I think I'm muted. Okay, am I unmuted? We good? Nope, I'm muted. All right, we good? We back? All right. Okay, so that was the most important thing I'm going to say tonight. All right, let's move on. No, I'm kidding. I'll say all right. Um, thankfulness. Okay. So that's what the Lord's given me over the past year is to really count our blessings to be very, very thankful for everything. Here's why I like the one reason why I like wearing a mask. Because when I take it off, I become very thankful for fresh air, for the ability to breathe and things like that. Um, I re-appreciate the freshness of our air. Because, you know, when you see people walking around masks, it has the picture as if like some chemical got into our air, right? It literally looks like a movie where something got unleashed in the air and we have to wear masks to protect ourselves. But when we take the mask off and you breathe, you go, our air is beautiful and it's clean and it's wonderful. And I never was thankful for that before. But now that I am thankful, I'm perfectly happy for the mask to go away and, and for us to move on. But uh, what is in the very middle of this seven word ascription of praise? Thankfulness, thankfulness. I highly encourage all of you to seriously consider the thankfulness of your heart towards every little thing and every person in your life as well. Now, verse 13. 
Then one of the elders said to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Now, literally in Greek, it's they came out of the tribulation, comma, the great one. Okay, they came out of the tribulation, the great one. And washed their robes and made them white. Now, my wife's sitting right over here. She's very interested in, in getting things white, you know, bleaching things, getting stains out and making them white. And you say, well, what is the best thing for making them white? Well, we're going to learn right here. They're made white in the blood. They're made white in the blood of the lamb. This is one of those paradoxes, right? How can blood make something white? Well, blood, meaning purity and righteousness, how are you ever going to obtain that? Your sin has got to be paid for, and so there he is bleeding for your sins. And you are being made white and pure through that spilt blood of the lamb. This brings us back to when he was found worthy to open the scrolls. And the reason he was ascribed worthiness to open the scrolls, because he was slain. It was his bloodshed from the blood of the lamb. So I gave you some verses. Listen, Leviticus 17, 14, for the life of every creature is in its blood. Acts 20, 28, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Romans 3, 25, Jesus Christ, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood. Romans 5, 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Colossians 1, 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Revelation 1, 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And Revelation 19, 13, he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Okay? Now, if your life was described so much by your blood, you probably went to a violent death, correct? And when people go to a violent death, we usually say, what a tragedy, a life ended in vain. It couldn't be less true of Jesus Christ. What a glorious shedding of blood because he's the son of God and his blood is eternal, has eternal effectiveness. If Isaiah 52 says he will sprinkle many nations and it's talking about his blood. We live in the United States of America and we've been sprinkled on this side of the planet 2000 years later with his blood. His blood is the central item of all of world history. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood is to tell us the seriousness of our sin and the depth of his love. How deeply must he love that he's willing for his son to bleed? We should not ever separate the two. Now, lest you think I read incredibly scholarly books and come up with amazing quotes from amazing people of the past, lest you think that, I'm now going to quote Meatloaf for you about this. Meatloaf said this, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. That is something Jesus Christ refused to say. He said, I would do anything for love, including that. Okay. Never fail to be amazed that if you ever said, 
If God ever said, I never want you to doubt my love again, ask anything of me, make it as high as heaven or low as Sheol, ask anything so that you'll never doubt my love. If you had the nastiness in your heart to look God in the eye and say, if you love me so much, then kill your beloved son, he would say, done. That's what we're talking about. Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So what is the reward for those who serve him day and night in his temple? What is those reward for those who serve them so much that they were martyred for him? Their reward is more service. The reward for earthly service is more heavenly service. And I'll even say this, the, the reward for earthly service is more earthly service as well. Jesus Christ said this, to him who has, more will be given, right? He's looking for the faithful servant, the wise and the faithful servant. And when you're a wise and faithful servant and you add to the kingdom and you've served him well, your reward is gonna be more service. That's how we work our employees. You do really well, we're gonna promote you to do really well at higher levels now, aren't we? And if you don't do really well, even the responsibility you had is gonna be taken away from you. That is a kingdom principle. To him who has, more will be given. To him who doesn't have, even what he does have will be taken from him and given to the one who has more. Okay? It's a kingdom principle. The reward for earthly service is more earthly service. And here we see the reward for earthly service is even heavenly service. Now, some say that because they're serving day and night, they think that means this must be during the millennial period since there's no nighttime in the eternal state. In the eternal state, there is no nighttime. So because they serve him day and night, this must be the millennial kingdom. I would say that's logical, but not necessary because the serving day and night, we also see as a metaphor for the continuous perpetual nature of the service. Um, how do you tell people who only experience day and night about perpetual service? You say they're serving day and night. So it could be a metaphor, it could be literal, uh, we'll leave that to your own heart uh, to decide that. Now, verse 16. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who's in the midst of the throne, see that phrase in the midst, in the middle. It's the most important part. For the lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So we'll wrap this up by saying this. You just heard the fulfillment there of the first three verses of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You heard that in those verses. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. They will never thirst. He restores my soul and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Two Wonderful, wonderful passages from the prophet Isaiah. First Isaiah chapter 43 is a picture of how uh, Revelation 7 just ended. Um, 43, starting in verse 18, God says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? 
I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert and the beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen, this people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. If you like that, you're gonna absolutely love this. It's Isaiah 35, starting in verse one. This is one of the greatest pictures from God to us in the scriptures. Speaking of this time, I believe referred to at the end of Revelation seven. Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Can you imagine a desert blossoming like a rose? And it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God, that only Peter, John, and James caught a glimpse of in Mark chapter nine on the Mount of Transfiguration. So what do we do about that? It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Isn't that the exact words they would wanna hear? The feeble and the weak. It's the exact words they would wanna hear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame, what would the lame like to do more than anything? People will say walk, but that's not good enough in God's economy. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb, you would say they, they'll wanna talk, they'll wanna speak, but that's not good enough in God's economy. This says they will sing for water shall burst forth, where? in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. Didn't we get a picture of that with the, the rock that Moses struck? And it, it, it gave water for a couple million people from that rock. In the, in the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. This is what's there. What are we gonna see there? A highway will be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. That's what's there. Now what's not there? No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This reminds me of a great song by Mercy Me. It's called In You. And in that song is this picture. It says, in you, we're the hungry. What do we try to do the hungry? We try to feed them, right? Not good enough with God. The hungry will feast at the table. The hungry will feast at the table. The blind will be frozen by colors that they see. 
The lame will dance. And what do we call the lame? Disabled, right? They're disabled. This says the lame will dance for they are able. And the weary find rest. Okay. We get so used to our imperfections, it becomes very hard to imagine perfections. But the perfections are what are purchased for you on the cross. These perfections await those who believe. So with that, although we are participating in the sin that deserves God's wrath, he has saved us by his blood. Therefore, he is worthy. For God so loved the world, Blanks are yours, that he gave his only beloved son, that whosoever, what? Just believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life, amen. It's the simplest verse in the Bible, in my opinion, is this one. The wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So what are you doing, and why are you doing it? Christ Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, so Paul will say, because when you sin, grace abounds. Does that mean you should go on sinning? He says, certainly not, because you who died to sin should no longer walk in it. There's a dignity and an integrity that comes with being a believer, and sin has no part in that picture whatsoever. Yes, we'll slip up into sin and thank God for forgiveness of sin through confession, but we have been made a new creation, right? A new creation in Christ Jesus through his shed blood. Amen. All right. Um, I heard there's some questions coming tonight, so let's go ahead and pray. And uh, we'll, we'll start the question time. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lamb. Lord, we thank you that you find us lovable enough to have bloodshed on our behalf. So Lord, we present our lives to you, Lord, for your will to be done in them. That when our story is finished being told, It'll be a story of you through and through. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Pastor Bill, question number one. Uh, there, this is really just kind of a point of clarification, so not exactly questions, but if you could just clarify a couple items uh, that you spoke about last week. What is the difference between what Jesus calls the time of sorrow and what he calls great tribulation in the book of Revelation? Uh, it's largely understood that the time of sorrows is the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, and the great tribulation is the last three and a half years of the seven-year period. So usually it's divided between the, the, the time of sorrows and the great tribulation, three and a half years each. Great. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, the second question simply reads that you last week mentioned the Olivet Discords. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that is uh, and the proper spelling for it? Yeah, it's the Olivet Discourse. It's a discourse that he gave on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and it's Matthew 24. It's uh, answering the apostles' questions on the Mount of Olives um, about the end times. You know, when will these things take place? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And and Jesus' answer of that through all of Matthew 24, because it was on the Mount of Olives and because it's a discourse, it's called the Olivet Discourse. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, we have another few questions here. 
prophetic timeline here. In Matthew 24, Jesus refers to the birth pains, the beginning, the beginning of sorrows, as before the tribulation. In verse 9 of Revelation, he says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. But Pastor Bill, last week, he mentioned that these events fall during the first three and a half years of tribulation. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not, Revelation 9, they said? We haven't gotten to Revelation 9. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 9. Matthew 24, verse 9. Okay. I believe that's how the question is reading. All right, let me look at Matthew 24, 9. <clears throat> All right, so verse 8 says, they, these are the beginning of sorrows. So they're talking about the first three and a half years there. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. That's likely referring to the great tribulation. That's the last three and a half years of that. So... Um, can you, can you tell me that question again? I'm not sure if, if I'm getting it. Go ahead. Sure. Let me pull up the question part of it. it it's just kind of confirming, um, the birthing pains and the beginning of sorrows as before the tribulation. Is that referring to these events falling during the first three and a half years of the tribulation? Uh, the things that are categorized under the beginning of sorrows, I would say, is the first three and a half years. And then when he says, then you'll be delivered up to tribulation, he'll be talking about the second, during the second three and a half years. Great. Um, again, another question just on some uh, clarification from last week. Uh, the question reads, will only Jews be able to be saved during the tribulation period? Do I need to Yes, that, that's it. Will only Jews be able to be saved during the tribulation period? Uh, no, I think um, what we just saw, uh, and maybe if um, maybe tonight answered that for him, but these the throngs of people with the white robes and so forth will be Gentiles. Um, so what we have, the beautiful picture of Revelation 7 is 144,000 Jews are sealed and protected so that their ministry is unaffected by all the chaos going on around them. They're sealed and protected. And the fruit of their ministry would be the throngs of people that we see being saved from the Gentile, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So it's not just Jews being saved. You would certainly have Gentiles being saved during the tribulation period as well. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, we have another question here that uh, basically in summary says you were discussing three different wild beast views from last week. And the question simply reads, which one do you personally believe? Is there anything that would lean towards one view or another? Um, so the wild beast could be literally wild beast because that followed a famine. I think that's what we're talking about is when the seal was open, a famine happened and then wild beasts appeared that would devour people. So I think the idea was it could be wild beasts, they could be political rulers um, described as wild beasts, and uh, the third one's not coming immediately to mind. Um, political rulers, actual wild beasts, um, or diseases that come from wild beasts, like swine flu and all that stuff. I believe that's what it's referring to. Is that what the question's getting at? Which one do I believe? Okay, so the rule of thumb for me interpreting confusing passages is this. The very first thing I do is I take it at its most literal and easiest 
meaning unless there's something in the context that says that I shouldn't. So therefore, I would say they're literal wild beasts, especially because to me it makes sense that during famine, a lot of their food supply would be gone. So therefore, they would probably turn on mankind as food. So that's the simplest understanding of wild beasts is that they're actual wild beasts. And I don't know of a reason to go away from the simple uh, understanding of that to say political rulers or anything else. I'm sure some would argue just what I read from Daniel, that political rulers are described as a bear, a leopard, and all of these other animals and so forth. So I would, I would not argue anybody that believed that. I think saying the diseases that come from them is probably less supported throughout the Old Testament and so forth. So I'm more comfortable dismissing that one than I am of actually choosing one of the other two. But because the simplest and most literal reading of it would be animals after the famine turning on mankind, um, that would be uh, what I would go with if I had to go with one of those. And I didn't have to go with one of those till, till the question was asked, by the way. But now that I do, uh, that's the one I would pick. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, this next person submitted uh, three questions kind of at once, so I'm just going to take them one at a time. Uh, the first question reads, is your thought that the rapture happens after the letters to the churches? Yes. Yeah. As soon as they're done, Revelation 4, uh, right after the, the letters in chapters 2 and 3, yes, I would say yeah. And the second question is, is there any reference of a timeline that has been given to churches to change and following that is uh, the question if churches do not change are they still raptured or are they are they left to go through the tribulation i don't think they would be raptured i mean jesus's words that if you don't repent and don't change that your candle will be removed from you so you'll be canceled out as a church so there's no good news in that whatsoever so these are warnings of repenting from sin um, that uh, can cost you your place as a church. So I wouldn't think they would be raptured, no. What was the first part of the question? Is there any reference of a timeline that has been given to the churches to change? Um, there's the certain insinuation that it should be immediate. I mean, slow obedience is no obedience. But it's not like I'm going to give you a week or a year or whatever to change. There's nothing like that given. But to receive those words from Jesus and not do it immediately, I don't think there's much hope for slow obedience there. Um, uh, I mean, can you possibly imagine this messenger delivering this straight from the mouth of Jesus and them saying, I'll do it later? Uh, that, that doesn't seem like a saved person would do that or a repentant heart would do that. So there is no specific timeline laid out for how long do you have, because if there were, that would be an indication of when Jesus is coming back, which he says we're not going to know that. It's going to be very much a surprise. So there's no timeline given, but certainly all context of Scripture would say the expectation is for immediate obedience to those things. Thank you, Pastor Bill. This is a super quick question from tonight's teaching, actually. Uh, somebody was just asking... Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch that you were mentioning, what was the name of his church that he founded again, and could you spell it, please? It's called the Coptic Church, which is not like a building called the Coptic Church. It's it's a whole collection of churches. It's the whole 
area of churches, uh, the Coptic region, the, the Coptic church, uh, C-O-P-T-I-C, C-O-P-T-I-C, Coptic. New Jerusalem and heaven. Uh, largely no difference at all, but I, I tend to think from some things Jesus said that the New Jerusalem, I personally call it downtown heaven. Um, it, it, it's, you know, we know how big it is. It's 1,400 miles wide, it's 1,400 miles long, and it's 1,400 miles tall, which I find fascinating because we don't measure heights of city. I mean, how tall is Fort Lauderdale? You just, you can't really measure that way. But New Jerusalem is measured like a cube. It's a perfect cube. And, um, and maybe we live in three dimensions that way. Maybe we can live, you know, 1,400 miles up in the air or something like that in New Jerusalem. But it has gates that are always open. So to me, open gates mean you come in and out of them. And, and Jesus will say things like this. In, in Luke's gospel, he said, because you've been found faithful, come take charge of 10 cities. So... There's cities that maybe millions of people are able to take charge of like 10 of them. So there's got to be other cities out there in heaven. And so I think they're outside the gates of the New Jerusalem and there's these other cities out there. And then when you want to shop and have a nice lunch, you go to the New Jerusalem and it's kind of like downtown heaven. And that's just what I see, you know, but maybe that's why none of anything I wrote ever got published. But um, that's just how I see it is... Uh, I can't believe all of heaven would just be 1,400 miles in a cube. To me, it must be much larger than that. So, and there's gates, again, why would there be gates if nobody walked through them? And so those gates leading out of New Jerusalem, I think are the cities that you and I could actually be in charge of some of those cities and so forth, and uh, who knows. But, um, so I would say the New Jerusalem is that downtown 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400 mile area. And then uh, heaven would be that plus all the other uh, cities out there. So just notice the progress of scripture. It starts with garden paradise, right? And then it ends in city paradise. So you, you see the progress of man, but given the perfections that God puts on it in the end. We go from garden to city, uh, but in its, in its perfections. Thank you, Pastor Bill. This is the last question of the evening. Uh, what is meant by an imprecatory psalm? Imprecatory psalms, um, imprecatory means you're imprecating somebody, which is like judging somebody for wrongdoing. So the imprecatory psalms are calls for God's judgment on God's enemies. So they read kind of harshly. They, they sound very kind of harsh in their tone, they're, but they're imprecatory. And I think I might have mentioned in this class last week even that there's like these different dispensations where the Old Testament had this dispensation of judgment. Right now we're in the dispensation of grace. The tribulation will be another dispensation of judgment. So we who actually lived during the time period of the dispensation of grace, when we read imprecatory Psalms, we get uneasy because we're used to, where's the forgiveness and the love and the mercy? But when you live in that dispensation, then the appropriate response to the enemies of God is judge them. And you see that in James and John who don't know that Jesus is ushering this new dispensation of grace. And when the Samaritans upset them, they say, can we call down fire from heaven and fry them all? And um, 
they're, they're just acting out of that dispensation of judgment. And oh, we did talk about it in class last week, because I think I brought you to Psalm 23, 6. No, nope, I didn't. Psalm 139, 20-something or other, where David, after loving on God tremendously, then all of a sudden breaks out into, Lord, don't I hate those who hate you? Just want to kill them all. Let's just be done with them. They use your name in vain and all this. Let's just be done with them. He breaks out into, because I love you so much, I want everybody that doesn't love you dead, okay, type of thing. So that was just the judgment, judgment dispensation they were in, which is awkward for us now when Jesus teaches us a different and new way. But I think the tribulation period brings us back to there because you hear the martyrs calling out for, for justice. They want their killers dead. You know, they call out for, for justice there. Thank you, Pastor Bill. That is all of the questions for this evening. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Bye, everybody.